Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of debt, Neil Garfield. It's a fact, even when it isn't. What can happen if there is a proper defense? What you don't know will hurt you. Tonight, we highlight a decision in Hawaii that shows how bad it can be when you don't do something. Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, June 24, 2021. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida. Before I get to tonight's topic, I want to make an editorial comment and give you my opinion. Recent disclosures in the national press that the government went to BlackRock to design a response to the pandemic and the economic problems from the pandemic is another example of hearing from one side of the table to the exclusion of anyone else. Expertise in certain types of financial transactions is, of course, a valid component of rational decision-making. But expert advice from those who will profit from the suggested course of action is not a substitute for duty or conscience. And in my opinion, any administration that looks first and only to Wall Street for answers is missing the bigger and more important picture. They're delegating government functions to private business interests unless they at least consider alternatives that could be proposed by other sectors. And that advice is readily available from multiple other sources. In 2008, we made the mistake of using the financial sector, Goldman Sachs in particular, at their insistence to bolster the financial markets and save the economy. We accepted Wall Street transactions that were based on the ability to lie continuously instead of looking at the base effects. We looked to the value of bonds as the standard upon which we could measure the effect. We should have been looking at the value of housing and household wealth. This is a country of people, not investment banks. If we had followed the lessons of other countries like Iceland, we would have decreased household debt, disciplined the bankers who got us into the crisis, and experienced a recovery in months instead of years. We know that now. The effect, as any economist will tell you, would have been a stimulus to consumer spending in a consumer-driven economy. Instead, we sacrificed homes, lives, and livelihoods 
as unemployed soared unnecessarily, all to protect the price of securities and the payoff on $40 billion insurance contracts that covered no losses suffered by anyone. And the security should never have been issued in the first place. In short, a very narrow band of dishonest people did extremely well while the rest of the world suffered, and that continues to this day. I call upon my listeners to act. Act in saving your homes from illegal foreclosures. Act in writing to the people you elected, and act in showing up at protests. Most of all, act in concert with others, even if you don't agree with their political views. As long as you have a shared goal of preventing illegal foreclosures, which not only undermines the wealth of all homeowners, but undermines the entire society, as long as you act with a common goal, you should set your political views aside. I know from my personal experience on the blog that people from all political views support what I'm doing. You should act the same way. Act with shared resources like a union because the government is not going to help you. You need to help yourselves. Now on to our show. It's about evidence and it's about how you can help yourselves. Foreclosure process is no different than any other. The courts are required to accept all allegations as true. So when somebody makes a claim against you, what they say about the claim is true at the start. That's the system. There's no bias or corruption on the part of judges who do this. They're following the requirements of law. The homeowner must say that the allegations are not true. And then, after denying the allegations in a judicial action, and also in a non-judicial action in a slightly different way, then the homeowner has two choices. The homeowner can seek to either disprove the allegations with evidence that shows that the allegations cannot possibly be true, or at least are most probably not true. The other path, which is far from well-traveled, but which has continuously proven its merit in courtroom warfare, is to establish that the foreclosure bill has no ability or willingness to produce evidence if required to do so. If you look at virtually all foreclosures in the current era, they are based upon out-of-court declarations, reports, or statements made by persons who never appear at trial and who are never mentioned. Those undisclosed people, machines, and business entities cannot be cross-examined or even subpoenaed. That is evidence which is expressly and specifically prohibited under the hearsay rules, because anyone who does come to court under those circumstances is basically a witness to a, a witness. We don't allow 
that kind of testimony. We don't allow that kind of testimony to be the foundation for exhibits that are accepted as evidence in court. So if the homeowner challenges the basic assumptions and allegations of the case, the results go one way. If the homeowner fails to make that challenge, he or she always loses, and that is exactly how the system is meant to work. Yes, it frequently gives an advantage to crooks and liars. Here's an example of how that works in stark black and white reality. In criminal law, dark hair versus blonde hair doesn't matter. If the person who assaulted the victim had blonde hair, then the witness who picks out a dark-haired person from the lineup may be wrong. But if they testify and point to the defendant as the person who assaulted them, that becomes true for the case. That's the evidence. If the witness is not cross-examined, the testimony stands even if it is untrue. If the defendant who is accused of the crime does not produce evidence that he was, for example, in Vietnam when the crime occurred in Atlanta, Georgia, the testimony of the witness stands, the defendant is convicted of a crime he didn't commit, and it will not be overturned on appeal just because he's found a new way to say that he wasn't there. The courts are designed to resolve issues with finality, and they don't easily overturn those because otherwise the decisions wouldn't mean anything. The defendant in that case, had his chance to exonerate himself at trial and didn't. But the system doesn't end there. Once the judge or jury has the evidence from the defendant that he wasn't in the country and he has the uh, and the judge has the evidence that the witness testified to, that the defendant was the guy who committed the assault, the judge can then weigh, must weigh, the evidence, which means weighing the credibility of the evidence of the witness versus weighing the defendant's statement and his proof that he was out of town. In criminal law, the judge or jury must be convinced of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt because in criminal law, the presumption is that the accused defendant is innocent. That's where you start. In civil law, it is exactly the opposite. The defendant is presumptively the party who committed whatever violation is alleged by the claimant. People get confused between criminal law and civil law. In civil cases, the judge must only believe that it's more likely than not that there is a loan account receivable owed by the homeowner 
that the homeowner didn't make a scheduled payment and that the claimant is the owner of the claim and therefore entitled to enforce the, the sale of the property to satisfy the apparently unpaid debt. All that is assumed at the beginning. Don't tell me about how such a system is defective. It isn't. There are defects in our justice system, many of which most people don't even realize exist. But the process of letting one party make accusations and the other party defending is the best way to resolve disputes as proven by all recorded human history. Whether you agree or not is irrelevant and a waste of time. It is the system under which we all work. But let's go back to our example and add something. Assume that the defendant finds out that the witness the, the party claiming to have been a victim to the crime was also out of the country and could not have possibly witnessed or known about the crime. Well, you have two choices. One is to prove that they were in, for example, Berlin, Germany. And the other, more likely choice, is that you don't actually know where they were, you just know they were out of the country. So before trial, you demand production of travel documents and answers to interrogatories about their whereabouts on the date and time of the assault. If the witness refuses to answer, there's a good chance the judge will order the witness to answer. If the witness continues to comply, to, to refuse to comply with the rules of procedure and the judge's order, the judge will order sanctions. And in the final analysis, under those circumstances, the judge will most likely prohibit such a witness from testifying, even if what they intend to say is true. That's the system. So the idea for the victim of an illegal foreclosure is to kneecap the opposition before they can put a witness on. So a complete and successful defense consists of preparing well-drafted discovery demands requiring production of travel and credit card information of the witness in our example. This is generally done by subpoena in civil cases, it could be a notice of service of interrogatories, requests for production, requests for admissions. In civil cases, it might be done uh, uh, by notice uh, ducasticum uh, to produce documents at time of deposition where you take their testimony. If the prosecution or the other side, is unable or unwilling to produce that information, the court will, in most cases, if you bring it up, the court will compel it by court order. If then the prosecution or the opposing side continues to ignore the discovery demand after a court order, the court will grant sanctions. If you ask for them, if you don't ask for the sanctions, then the fact that they violated the court order 
means nothing at trial. Court-imposed sanctions come in two main flavors. One is monetary sanctions, and the other is evidentiary sanctions. You are seeking evidentiary sanctions, but you will, of course, accept any money the court awards you. You want the court to say that there can be no foundation evidence presented establishing the competency of the witness to testify without responding to your discovery demands. In order to get to that point, you have to be relentless and persistent and aggressive and willing to take heat from a judge who thinks that your tactics are perhaps dilatory. And in the continued absence of a reasonable response to the discovery demands, that means that the other side cannot establish any case against you, which means they are forced to dismiss all charges because they don't have a case. If they don't dismiss, the court will gladly do it for them to get to clear the, the judge's docket. All that happens without you proving any fact other than the other side's unwillingness to comply with the rules. The orders of the court and the basic components of justice and fairness. The, the defendant, you, the defendant in the criminal action wins without ever having to address the merits or facts of the accusation. And in our example, even if he actually did commit the crime, he still wins because there's no evidence against him other than a witness who refuses to answer the questions and therefore loses all credibility with the court. That's the result you seek in foreclosure litigation. That's how I've won. That's how other lawyers have won. That's how homeowners have won. That's how homeowners are successful in challenging foreclosures. And if you've been reading my blog, you know very well that that's the right result because there is no party that's losing money just because you didn't make a payment. And there's no account out there, no loan receivable account. Securitization produced plenty of money for everybody without you making a payment. That is the result you seek in foreclosure litigation. Going after the case on its merits will get you lost in the weeds. You must be prepared to wage battle after battle in the court, seeking orders on your motions to compel, motions for sanctions, and motions in limine. But ultimately, your chances of winning are very high if you execute this strategy with the right timing and in the court-approved ways, even with judges who generally rule for the foreclosure bill. I know from personal experience in representing people in front of judges who generally rule for the foreclosure bill. We won. The reason is that the behavior of the lawyers for the foreclosure bill 
has put them in the crosshairs of the judge that always results in judge versus lawyer. In that case, judge wins. So the judge blames the lawyer for not complying with discovery. And then if you persist, the judge blames the lawyer and his client. That's called reframing the case. By making the case all about the behavior of the foreclosure mill, you don't need to address the merits of the case other than to deny the existence of a claim. The failure of homeowners and some lawyers to recognize this simple basic part of the judicial process is the reason why most contested foreclosures are decided against the homeowner. The recent Hawaii case shown on the blog today is an example of how this works in foreclosures. The court gets lost in the weeds of presumptions and assumptions because the homeowner failed to contest the basic facts. The homeowner failed to contest the basic facts because he thought there was no basis for contesting them. That assumption is the basis why most homeowners don't even attempt to contest illegal foreclosures. 96% of them walk away. You must accept the fact that the court is going to use legal presumptions and assumptions of fact based upon established statutes, legal precedents, and common sense, starting with the idea that nobody would file a foreclosure claim unless they were really entitled to do it. That isn't true, but based upon everything still taught in law schools, everyone assumes it to be true at the beginning. If you fight the application of the presumption by legal argument, you will probably fail. If you fight the application of the legal presumption because the opposition refuses to answer questions and produce documents that show the presumed facts are true, you will tend to win because without those answers and without those documents, it's just a presumption, and now it's not based on any facts. The reason is that there are no such facts, because that's not what the scheme is. But Wall Street banks have created an infrastructure for the production of fabricated documents that look facially valid, and that is where all the presumptions get their start. So if you look at this case out of Hawaii to see this in action, Here's the Supreme Court of the state of Hawaii knocks down each objection from the homeowner because, and this is what they are saying, not just me, they say he has failed to raise objections at the proper time and failed to contest the underlying facts of the foreclosure. This is wording from the court in their decision in U.S. Bank as trustee for the LSF-9 Master Participation Trust versus Verhagen, uh, case SCWC 17-0000746. And the court says, of course, a defendant may counter these inferences of possession at the time of filing with, with evidence setting forth specific facts that there is a genuine issue as to whether the plaintiff actually possessed the subject note at the time it filed suit. But that has not happened here. 
Verhagen has not offered any evidence undermining Patterson's testimony that Caliber possessed the note on March 23, 2016. And he has not offered any evidence that the note left U.S. Bank's custody in the 10 months between Martin's certification and the Bailey letter. Nor has he offered any, I'm reading from the case here, nor has he offered any evidence contradicting or calling into question Martin's certification. Accordingly, U.S. Bank's evidence establishes that the bank possessed the note endorsed in blank at the time it initiated suit. The bank thus has standing to foreclose against Verhagen under Ray's Toledo. The evidence that the note existed, that Verhagen was in default under its terms, and that Verhagen received the necessary notice of his default is undisputed. There is no genuine issue as to the note's existence. Verhagen's default under its terms or Verhagen's receipt of the necessary notice. U.S. Bank is entitled to summary judgment and the ICA erred in reversing the circuit court's grant of summary judgment to U.S. Bank. Issues not properly raised on appeal will be deemed to be waived. Verhagen had an opportunity to oppose U.S. Bank's motion to ratify, but he did not do so. As such, he has waived his objections to that motion. Regardless, the ICA did not err in considering whether the Patterson Declaration was admissible or sufficient to establish U.S. Bank's entitlement to summary judgment. The moral of that story is that if you fail to contest the basic underlying facts of the foreclosure, you almost certainly lose. Even though there is no debt, there is no claim, and the people seeking to enforce it have no right to do so. In this case, the defendant did not conduct discovery and therefore could not object to any affidavit or any testimony or any exhibit that raised legal presumptions of fact. If you had conducted discovery properly, timely, and then pressed the issue in motions to compel, and then pressed the issue in motions for sanctions, and then pressed the issue in motions in limine, this case could well have been decided very differently because I know, as does everybody else who has litigated U.S. Bank with the LSF-9 Master Participation Trust, that they got nothing. Anyone familiar with the LSF-9 Master Participation Trust and U.S. Bank as trustee knows that this trust is a pile of layers of nonsense with no debt, no claims, and no right to administer, enforce, or collect any money from the homeowner. But here the homeowner lost anyway. The court was required to enter judgment against him because he did not defend in a manner that the court could recognize and use as a basis for entering judgment for him instead of his accusers. Now, let me just add a quick note here that the fact that he didn't do all this may represent, as others have suggested to me, the inability of the defendant to pay 
a lawyer to conduct that discovery. That's also our system. Now, yes, the government should be protecting people against that kind of behavior, but it doesn't, or it hasn't so far. So I think this case is a perfect example of the proposition that all things are not equal. The key to this decision is that the homeowner presented no evidence nor any objection to evidence to the contrary of the presumptions that were applied. I could argue that they're wrong about their application of the hearsay rule, but it makes no difference. I see I'm out of time here. There's two two ways to defeat foreclosures. The first is blow up the robo-witness on the stand, which works some of the time. And the second is to conduct aggressive discovery asking about the existence, ownership, and rights to administer the underlying obligation. That works most of the time if it is followed out to the end of litigation. So that's it for tonight, folks. Thanks for sharing your time with me. See you next week. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.